All right. Well, um, welcome back to the Home Group Podcast. This is Pastor Joel, um, and we're going to look at chapters three, four, and five in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and so what I'm going to do is just give you a you know, two or three sentence summary of the chapters, identify the main characters and uh, their roles, and then we'll do a, um, a more extended summary of each chapter so that when you come together to read it, you've got some uh, introduction to the story and a little bit more familiarity with what's happening. So um, in chapters three through five, uh, what we read, uh, we read first about the ministry of John the Baptist, and then Luke shifts his focus to um, the life and ministry of Jesus. We see Jesus's baptism and his temptation or testing in the desert. And uh, then we see the beginning of his ministry of preaching and demonstrating the gospel through um, healing and table fellowship with the poor and the dishonored. And so Luke begins by looking at the ministry of John the Baptist and then um, focuses solely on Jesus and his ministry, as well as his baptism and temptation. Um, the main characters in these chapters, uh, you have the empire, again, this kind of triad of uh, power, Rome, Herod, um, and the temple, uh, the religious authorities. You have uh, Satan introduced in this, uh, in chapter four, and we'll come back to that. Um, you've got the crowd, again, who shows up. And again, we always want to note um, the responses of the crowd to Jesus, and those vary in these chapters. Um, you have the poor, the, the dishonored, the excluded, the outsider. Um, we see them especially in chapter five. And then you have the disciples introduced, in chapter five. And again, um, you have the temple. Um, this is the setting for the third temptation of Jesus. And in general, you see that the temple system is subtly challenged by Jesus. Um, we see this especially when the religious leaders confront him about his power to forgive and his reasons for feasting rather than fasting. And we'll come back to that in chapter five. Before we work through the chapters, it would it's helpful to kind of imagine um, the geographic, the geographical movement that occurs as Jesus um, kind of journeys through these chapters and as Luke charts that journey. Um, Jesus joins John the Baptist in the wilderness. Um, that's the area around the Jordan River. This would kind of be considered the, the borderland of Israel. And uh, this is the area uh, in biblical uh, language that is outside the camp. Um, it's the polar opposite, you might say, from the temple, which is the place of power and influence. So Jesus is baptized outside the camp. He's led by the Holy Spirit into the desert for 40 days to be tempted or tested. And after completing this test successfully, he returns to the land of Israel, the promised land, and he begins to lay claim to, uh, lay claim to his kingdom. But what we see is that he lays claim, he exercises dominion in a way that people don't expect. Okay, so let's kind of see how that works out in these chapters. So chapter three begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. And as you read, um, note the triad of power that's introduced at the beginning of chapter three in verses one and two. And I'll read those verses. Um, Luke writes, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. 
So we have Pilate and Herod and the high priesthood introduced, but the word comes to John, not to them. Um, John, this outlier, this outsider who lives in the wilderness. Um, God calls John to proclaim a baptism or a washing of uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins that will prepare the way for Jesus. And so John is um, what we might say the last of the pre-Christian prophets. He kind of falls in between. Um, He warns against false repentance and against kind of just uh, religious ritual. Um, He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just go through the motions, but there needs to be a heart change that evidences in a life change. Um, John also asserts this division between ethnic Israel and what we might say is true Israel. True Israel, true people of God, hear the word of God and they repent and they bear fruit in keeping with repentance in their life. Um, Note, too, that the world comes to John. This is something that Luke especially highlights. Um, Three groups of people uh, Luke mentions, the crowds, tax collectors, and soldiers. And what John does to each of them is he calls each of them to live in keeping with God's law, with the way of love, with mercy and justice. So he tells the crowd to give generously to those in need. He tells tax collectors to collect no more than you're authorized. And he tells soldiers, he says, don't extort money by threats. And so use your power for good and not for evil. So the people hear this teaching, they see John and they're wondering, is he the Messiah? But John is quick to deny that he's the Messiah. He says the true Messiah will baptize with uh, the Holy Spirit and fire. And this probably refers to Jesus' own work of purging and dividing Israel. Um, It's a work that John introduces when he asserts this division between the ethnic Israel and true Israel. And Jesus carries on kind of uh, that ministry um, and asserts a more stark division, um, purging Israel in a sense of those who are not uh, true, those who are counterfeit, and establishing in his disciples a true um, Israel, a new Israel, um, those who will bear fruit in keeping with repentance, those who don't just claim Abraham as their natural follower, or as their natural father, but who follow Jesus. And so we'll see in chapters four through five that as Jesus begins his ministry and calls his disciples, he focuses on the outsider and he begins to assert this division. Um, the temple versus Jesus, the religious leaders versus Jesus, Rome versus Jesus. And the crowd has to decide how they're going to receive him. What do they think about him? Um, Jesus goes towards the outsider. He goes away from uh, power and influence and position kind of into the wilderness, whether that's literally in the desert or towards the outsider, towards the outcast, the marginalized. Uh, Luke shows uh, uh, John the Baptist confronting King Herod about marrying his brother's wife. And then Herod responds by locking up John in prison. And so uh, this is actually the last we see of John's ministry. And so what we see in John's ministry is that he preaches this universal moral message. He calls outsiders, insiders, powerful and powerless. He calls them all to repent and to look to the coming Messiah for deliverance from their sin. Um, And so then Luke turns his attention to the baptism of Jesus. And just like John, Jesus also receives a word from God, but it's a much more profound word compared to what John received. 
there are two important elements of Jesus's baptism. First, you'll see that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily uh, form. He marks Jesus out as a prophet. And then there's this voice from heaven that says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Um, this marks him among the prophets as God's son. And this proclamation of sonship uh, recalls Psalm 2 and especially Psalm 2, 7 through 12. So let me read those verses. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Um, and so there, you know, in this allusion to Psalm 2, you see uh, once again this tension and this contrast between the rulers of the earth, the power, the empire, and Jesus and his sonship. Um, and that, that uh, tension and, uh, will eventuate into a battle, as we'll see in chapter 4, uh, with Jesus' temptation. So the word of God came to John the Baptist, but the Holy Spirit visibly descends on Jesus. And unlike John the Baptist, the word of God for Jesus proclaims his sonship and his authority. And then in Luke's gospel comes the genealogy. And we might wonder, well, why is this genealogy here? Um, well, in Jesus' baptism, we see he is the divine son of God. But Luke uses the genealogy of Jesus to show that Jesus is also a son of Adam, truly human, and legally a descendant of David. Um, and so the effect of, of uh, Jesus' baptism and genealogy is that Luke highlights Jesus' humanity as well as his divinity. And this joining of God and man um, is, uh, constitutes another allusion, this time to this mysterious figure in Daniel 7 who is described as one like a son of man. Um, that is, he's human in appearance, and yet in Daniel 7, he's given universal authority and can remain in the holy present of the ancient of days of God, and he doesn't die. And so, as Luke joins the baptism and God's proclamation of his sonship with the genealogy, we see that Jesus is truly man, truly God, son of David, son of God, son of man. He is the Messiah servant. And it raises the question, how is Jesus going to deliver? How is he going to rule? And then how will the empire, the prevailing authorities, how are they going to respond? And chapter 4 shows us, um, but chapter 4 is a surprise because chapter 4 introduces this new character, this new enemy into the picture. Um, so in chapter 4, after Jesus' confirmation as God's son and the Davidic Messiah, he is led in he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted or uh, to be tested. And of course, this 40-day period in the wilderness parallels Israel's 40-year desert wandering. But Jesus' time in the wilderness is not a punishment as Israel's was. It's a test, a proving ground, and Jesus does prove that he is the true Son of God. And as I mentioned before, another character is introduced, a character associated with the empire, and this is Satan, the adversary. Um, Jesus's temptation is really a battle with Satan, and that battle will continue throughout Luke's gospel as other uh, individuals like the religious authorities also test Jesus. Um, so what initially begins as this chess match between Jesus and the worldly empire 
um, embodied in Pilate and Herod and the religious leaders. Now it comes into focus as a war ultimately between Jesus and Satan. Um, Satan is the ruler of the worldly empire. But as we read, uh, the battle is not what we might expect. Um, it's not this clash of swords, but uh, for Jesus, it's this very personal, uh, theological, even psychological kind of um, fight. Uh, it focuses on Jesus's self-understanding about what it means to be the Son of God and whether he will trust and submit to his heavenly Father. Um, in this way, it really it very closely mirrors Adam and Eve's test in the garden, which also focused on what it meant to be like God and trust God. In both cases, the details of the testing are kind of mundane and ordinary. You know, for Adam and Eve, it was just eating a fruit. For Jesus, one of the tests is turning stones into bread. And yet in both cases, the future of the world kind of dances on this razor's edge. Uh, and for Jesus, it's the razor's edge of what it means to be the Son of God and to have an abiding relationship to the Father. So Satan presents Jesus with three tests, um, turning stones to bread, worshiping Satan to gain power over the nations, and then this final test of God's love and faithfulness by Jesus casting himself down and God sending angels to save him, um, casting himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And so in each of these tests, um, there's a kind of um, a, a, an evaluation of what Jesus understands it to mean that he is the son of God. Um, Satan says, if you're the son of God, essentially turn the stones to bread. Why should you suffer hunger? Um, and then the second test is the purpose or destiny of the son of God simply to achieve worldly power, regardless of the means. If that's the case, then why not just worship me and get that worldly power? Did the Messiah come just to rule the earth? Um, and then finally, should the son of God, if you're the son of God, why should you have to live by faith like any other man, trusting the promise of God's love and faithfulness rather, rather than proving it to yourself and others? And so cast yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple and God will save you and you and all people will know that God loves you and that you're his son. And so Satan is testing Jesus's commitment to his messianic calling um, will Jesus remain faithful to God? That's the question. And also, does Jesus accept the restrictions of being fully human? Um, Satan tempts Jesus to cast off the human restrictions of his identity as the messianic servant. Um, and that entails submission to the Father, victory over the nations through sacrifice, and justification or confirmation of God's love through death and resurrection, not just by casting yourself down off the temple. And so Satan tempts Jesus to use his power to fulfill his hunger um, instead of submitting that use of the power to the Father, even if that means going hungry. And Satan tempts Jesus to achieve enthronement above the nations without having to demonstrate his maturity and merit through faithfulness and self-giving, even to the point of giving his life. And Satan tempts Jesus to manufacture an experience of the Father's love and commitment apart from real human trust. And so ultimately, Satan tempts Jesus to cling to what Jesus, according to Philippians 2, has already set aside by coming in the flesh. Philippians 2 says that Christ set aside his equality with God. He didn't count it as a thing to be grasped. And if you'll remember in Genesis 3, Satan tempts Adam and Eve in the same way, promising that they will be like God if they eat the fruit. But where Adam reaches for equality with God, 
Jesus sets it aside and demonstrates by setting it aside that he has the heart and character of the true Son of God. So in the testing of Jesus, we see that Jesus is the beloved Son of God who was a second Adam and passes the test where both Adam and Israel failed. Of course, there's many other things we could highlight, but um, that's just something of what we see in Jesus's temptation. Following Jesus's testing, he goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he inaugurates his ministry there. And he frames his ministry by citing Isaiah 61, which focuses on the outsiders, the poor, the blind, the oppressed and captive. He also cites the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, And for Jesus, these serve as the setting for his own ministry. They kind of frame what Jesus has come to do. And the time periods of Elijah and Elisha were seasons of uh, vast unbelief throughout Israel, where, uh, as Jesus points out, healing miracles were done for Gentiles like Naaman the Syrian rather than for Israel. And so as he's um, citing Elijah and Elisha and, and identifying this uh, his own ministry with that time period, the crowd understands exactly what he's getting at, um, that the present era is very similar to the era of Elijah and Elisha of uh, vast unbelief, and they're ticked off. They are enraged, and they try to put him to death. They drive Jesus to a cliff. They try to throw him over. Um, Jesus doesn't fight them. He doesn't give himself over and let them throw him over and then save himself, kind of like Satan tempted him to do in the third temptation. Instead, Jesus just passes through them. Um, And so doing, he demonstrates that he's in complete control. Um, He's living in submission to the Father, but his time to die has not come. His time of exaltation through death and resurrection has not come. Um, So then Jesus leaves Nazareth and he goes to Capernaum in Galilee. And Luke, uh, he's already shown us an example of Jesus's preaching uh, in Nazareth, and that's what ticks the crowd off. Now Luke shows us uh, Jesus's ministry of healing. And unlike uh, Nazareth, here the crowd marvels at his authority. They marvel at his power. They beg him to stay. But Jesus says he must go and preach the good news of the kingdom in other towns because that's why he came. And so as we look at these two episodes of Jesus's preaching and his healing, we, we see the fickleness and ambivalence of the crowd. Um, from town to town, the reception of Jesus may change, but the common theme is that the crowd loves Jesus for less than he truly is. Maybe they marvel at his knowledge, they celebrate him as a healer, the, they want to look to him, we'll see, as a revolutionary, but they don't embrace him as a preacher of repentance and mercy to all people, including the nations, including the outsiders, including even Israel's enemies. Um, that brings us to chapter 5. Chapter 5 opens with Jesus calling his disciples, um, and he identifies them as fishers of men. Um, that's how he describes their calling. And remember, uh, now we're dealing with water and fish. And remember that water in scripture is the symbol of the formless void and the chaos that we see in Genesis 1. And so what Jesus does is he situates Israel within that chaos and he calls his disciples as fisher of men to pull men from the water of Israel into God's new creation family. And note too that the disciples are not returned to their vocation as uh, John the Baptist did with those who came to him. Um, The disciples instead leave everything behind and follow Jesus. And this highlights the uniqueness of Jesus's ministry, that because of who Jesus is, sacrificial discipleship, um, this complete reorientation to the world, 
um, is the only proper response. It's the only way to really follow him. And we're going to see more of that in later chapters. And so Luke, through as he highlights these different aspects of Jesus's ministry, is showing how he kind of brings this baptism of fire, where he's purging and dividing and asserting these differences between those who are truly people of God and those who are only people of God in word or um, because their uh, natural father is Abraham. All right, so after the call of his disciples, Jesus continues demonstrating his power to heal and his power over uncleanness by um, touching and healing a leper. I remember a leper would be kind of the archetypal outsider. And this is really interesting because, you know, if you touch a leper, now you're rendered unclean um, according to the law. But this doesn't happen to Jesus, or at least he doesn't consider himself unclean. And so the question is, is he flouting the law here? Is he disregarding it? But then if you keep reading, you see that Jesus instructs the man to present himself to the priest and make an offering for his cleansing. And so Jesus is very careful to continue to submit to the Old Testament law. And so there's a tension now between um, uh, whether Jesus is abiding by the Old Testament law or whether he isn't. Um, How can you touch an unclean man and not be Uh, unclean yourself. Next, Jesus heals a paralytic man. And along with healing him, he proclaims the forgiveness of his sins. Now, this provokes the religious leaders and they question Jesus's authority to forgive because God would only grant authority to forgive to a prophet or priest. And so what emerges in these two stories is something of the enigma of Jesus, because on the one hand, he is careful to submit to the Old Testament law, including the role of the priests. But then on the other hand, unclean people don't contaminate him, um, but they're healed. And he assumes the authority to grant forgiveness, which only a prophet or priest would possess. And so it raises the question, it's the same question that religious leaders ask, what is the nature of his power and his authority? As we move forward in chapter five, we come to the calling of one specific disciple, Levi the tax collector, and then we see this feast that Levi throws for Jesus. Um, So Luke Luke focuses on a particular disciple, and it's a tax collector. Again, this is um, an individual who fits under the banner of the poor. He's of dishonorable status. And Luke uh, shows us that Jesus doesn't just call him as a disciple, but he enjoys table fellowship, eating and drinking, feasting with Levi and other tax collectors. And so again, this theme comes up that Jesus calls and comes for all kinds of people and especially the outsider. Now, Jesus's attendance at this feast provokes the Pharisees and scribes And so they don't go to Jesus initially, they go to his disciples, which is often what we do. They grumble to his disciples and they say, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Um, So they grumble at the disciples, but Jesus answers. And he says, I haven't come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So Jesus is pointing out that he's come for sinners, for people who need him. And note that Jesus doesn't just come to comfort them, um, though they are excluded, but he comes to call them to repentance. He comes to call them to true life. And so again, this theme that we saw in John, where John calls everyone, insider, outsider, the powerful and the powerless, he calls them all to uh, repentance. He offers them the consolation of his acceptance and forgiveness, but repentance and fruit in keeping with repentance is, um, is the only way to true life. Now the religious leaders respond to Jesus with another question. 
Why do you eat and drink while the disciples of John the Baptist fast and offer prayers? And Jesus answers this second question with a series of metaphors. Um, he mentions a wedding feast where the wedding guests don't fast when the bridegroom is present, but when the bridegroom is absent. And Jesus' point seems to be that as long as Jesus is present, his disciples are going to eat and drink and feast. It's They will fast when he leaves. Um, and then Jesus mentions this old and new cloth and old skin, old wine skins and new wine skins, and then old and new wine. And Jesus's point seems to be here. He's raising the question, what is the season? Um, what kind of era is Jesus bringing? Is it something new? Um, you don't patch an old garment with new cloth because the cloth will shrink and then the patch where it's seamed to the old cloth, the new it will it will um, rip. You don't place new wine in old wine skins because as as the wine ferments, emits the vapor, it expands the old brittle skin and causes the wine skin to burst. And so you put new wines in uh, new wine skins uh, that are more flexible um, and they're going to expand and stretch more easily. And you don't enjoy new wine after you've drunk uh, aged wine because the aged wine tastes better. And so what Jesus seems to be saying here is that his arrival in his ministry initiates this new era, and it represents a departure from the old era, from the current temple system. Um, what Jesus brings can't be contained or fitted into the temple system. It's going to rupture it. It will break it, just like the, the, new, pat, the new garment and the old garment don't mix. Um, but also what Jesus brings, it reaches back far before the temple system. It's the plan, in a sense, that has been brewing or fermenting from the very beginning. It's what gives the temple its significance. Um, and what Jesus brings, it actually brings something more delightful and more profound than the Mosaic Covenant or the earthly temple could bring. Jesus is saying, I bring the aged wine, not the grape juice. Uh, in a sense, I bring intoxicating joy, not just a sugar high, right? And that's how chapter five closes. And so what we see in chapters three through five is that Jesus's presence provokes not just the attention of the earthly empire and Rome and Herod and the temple, but it causes the serpent himself, Satan, to show his head again, just as he did in the garden. Uh, but the tactics that worked on Adam, son of God, don't work on Jesus, who is God's beloved son. Jesus proves faithful where Adam and Israel failed. In a sense, he storms the beachhead of Israel after that testing um, because he's demonstrated his right to dominion. He travels from town to town exercising that dominion, but it's not in the way that we'd expect because he doesn't come with horse and sword, but preaching good news and healing, um, bidding his disciples not to fear and restoring the outsider to his table. But still the empire has been provoked by Jesus and the kingdom that he brings. And so the eye of the empire is on Jesus and his followers. And so we see in these chapters that John the Baptist, the prophet announcing uh, the Messiah's arrival, he's thrown into prison by Herod. Um, and the religious leaders kind of pick up where uh, Satan the serpent left off by testing and challenging Jesus about his identity and especially about his power and authority as a son of God. All right, so that brings us to the end of chapter five and uh, the end of this podcast. So um, as you get together with your home groups and discuss and read these chapters, 
Just keep this summary in mind and hopefully it will help you get some fresh insight from uh, the story Luke is telling about the new kingdom that Jesus brings. Thank you.